I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. And these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at Ephesians 4 for you so that you can look at the verse that we'll be considering this morning. Ephesians 4. Ten years ago, author Jerry Bridges spent several months writing a book called Respectable Sins. The subtitle is Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. The book has chapters for several common sins that have become acceptable among Christians. Things like discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, and several others. But at one point, he he says this. In the months that I've been working on this book, I've often been asked in social settings, what are you working on now? When I mention respectable or acceptable sins we tolerate, invariably someone will roll his or her eyes and say, oh, you mean like gossip. He says, apparently this is the first of the Christian sins that comes to mind. So it must must be quite prevalent among us and is something we continue to tolerate in our lives. So prevalent and dangerous is this issue of the tongue to the health of the church. It's necessary for us to be reminded often of the destructive power of our words. Some years ago, I attended a seminar led by a serial church planter, a man who will plant a church, be there for a few years, And then he'll move on to plant another. Phil Spry has started several churches over the years. And he was sharing with this group of pastors how he's gone about starting and sustaining those new churches. One of the things he said was that he preaches on the dangers of the tongue every year, annually. And in his case, he preaches the same sermon once a year to keep it before the people. So if today's message sounds vaguely familiar, it's partly because the topic requires regular reminders, and I've sought to provide those regular reminders. And earlier this year, I did two messages from James chapter 3, and that chapter is devoted to how we communicate. Today, we're going to consider a passage in Ephesians 4, from which I spoke on this topic a couple of years ago. Now, you may think that I'm over-dramatizing the importance of this matter. But experienced pastors like Phil Spry are very wary of what the tongue can do to a congregation. And then consider how much the Bible has to say about this topic. The book of Proverbs alone has 60 passages dealing with our words. And today we're going to see a number of other passages from other portions of Scripture as well that deal with the same topic. Now, one reason that this issue requires such attention is the sheer volume of the words that we speak. And that makes all of us vulnerable to the misuse of those words. In one of those messages, I told you about the results of a study that was published in 2007 in Science Magazine. The study was designed to determine who talks more, men or women. Women are generally assumed to be more talkative than men, at least by the men. But data were analyzed from participants who wore a voice recorder, and that recorder sampled ambient sounds for a number of days. Participants' daily word use was extrapolated from the number of recorded words 
And it turns out that women and men both spoke about 16,000 words each day. Now, at 16,000 words a day and allowing for you to sleep on average, let's say, six hours, we speak about 900 words an hour. Now, if you've been up for an hour, and some of you, it doesn't look like that's been the case. But if you've been up for an hour, then on average, on average, you've done that already. But if you're not a morning person and you're just now getting warmed up, then somebody is in for an avalanche from you during our cafe community time. 16,000 words a day, 900 words every hour. If you live to be 75, and let's say you've been speaking fluently for 70 of those years, you'll have been speaking for 25,500 days. And at 16,000 a day, you'll have spoken 408,800,000 words. 408,800,000 words. Now, with that in mind, consider these words of Jesus. Every person will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Each of us has about 409 million opportunities to speak careless words. And Jesus says, God is taking note of all of those. And two verses prior to that one in verse 36 of Matthew 12, Jesus famously says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, the Greek word that's translated careless in that verse refers to words that might be thought insignificant except for their revealing what's in the heart. Jesus is saying that every spoken word reflects the heart's overflow and is known to God. And therefore, words are of critical importance. Now, it's an intimidating thought that we're going to give an account for millions of words. But I can, I can help you reduce your tally by probably about half. I recommend this. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That's in your Bible, Philippians 2.14. So of your 409 million, you won't be judged for some number of those if you'll just do that. And a very high number of those, in fact, for most of us. So with those kinds of passages, friends, it's clear, is it not, that our words are very important to God. And so I ask you this morning, do you want to speak in a way that pleases God? Well, if we do, if we do want to please God in the way we talk, then it's very good for us to just take some time, quiet our hearts and our, and our minds, stop talking, and listen to the word of God. Verse 29 of Ephesians 4 says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to open your word. 
and see there the words, the very words of God. Lord, help us then to be attentive to those words and help us to be people who wisely listen more than we speak. And in particular, listen to what you say and appropriate what you say before we speak. And to that end, Lord, we ask you to help us as we we look at this particular passage on the topic of how we communicate. Help us, Lord, to give our full attention and open our hearts to change the way we think and therefore the way we talk so that we can reflect you in our communication. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, verse 29 of Ephesians 4 is, as I've been reminding you the last few weeks in this mini-series we're engaged in, this verse is part of a section that begins back in verse 25. The section provides direct commands for things that we are to put off and others that we're to put on. And those words, put off and put on, were used in New Testament times, as I've told you, of putting on and putting off clothing. We're to put on attitudes and speech and behavior that's consistent with who we are in Christ. And who we are in Christ is developed in marvelous detail in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And then chapter 4 begins three chapters through the end of the book that say, in effect, since this is who you are, then live out of that new identity that you have in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then chapter 4 commences giving these instructions about how it should look for those of us who have this identity that's described in chapters 1 through 3. And verses 22 and 24 tell us to put off the old self and put on the new self. And verse 24 says this new you, this new me, verse 24, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does this new you, this new Christian you, look like? Well, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4, and then through chapter 5 and verse 4, we're given six areas of life that should show the difference that Christ has made. The new man and the new woman he is remaking us to be. And a few weeks ago from verse 25, we saw that the new you puts on truth. And then a couple of weeks ago, From verses 26 and 27, the new you puts on peace. Last week in verse 28, the new you puts on generosity. And in our passage today, we're going to see that the new you puts on constructive speech, constructive communication. And then we will see the remaining two in the coming weeks. Now, all of those, today the fourth of the sixth, but all all four of those, truth and peace and generosity and constructive speech, they're all important because, now get this, they are all reflections of what God is like. They are, in the words of verse 24, what it looks like to, quote, be like God. To put it another way, failure to display these things in our lives is failure to display the character of God in our lives. To focus particularly on our words, failure to speak constructively is failure to speak as God does. So we each need to, we each need what I say in the title of the message, which is at the top of your outline. And most of you know that every week we insert an outline in your program 
If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out and look up at the top. All of us need what I say in the title there, divine speech therapy. And as part of that divine speech therapy, the first point I have for you in the outline is this. Our words affect people. Our words affect people. So this passage, like all of the six virtues that we are to have and behaviors that we are to have in our new identity, is done in a relational context. And we're told to speak words that are not unwholesome, but rather that build up, that are constructive. So that's in this relational context because our words affect the people with whom we're in these relationships. Now, there's always background to God's commands because God was here first. And his commands reflect what he wants and what he has designed. So often when you see commands in the New Testament, like we're looking at today in Ephesians chapter 4, they have their roots in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. Many times going back to the very beginning of the Bible. And the beginning, the, the ability to communicate is no exception. It's rooted in our unique creation in the image of God. Now, I'm going to, not going to have you turn to the beginning of your Bible. I'm just going to remind you of some of the things that it says there. But in the opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God spoke creation into existence. And it says things there like, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, Let the land produce vegetation, and it was so. So God speaks creation into existence. Notice, He speaks. And then that opening chapter of the Bible, we see God speaking to God. In chapter 1 and verse 26 of Genesis, God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And I believe this is an allusion to what we will find revealed later in Scripture, the fact that God is one God in three persons, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we see God speaking to humanity, to the first man and the first woman. The Bible tells us in verse 27 of Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So God speaks to humanity, and humanity made in the image of God with the capacity to communicate in words, speaks to God. After Adam is presented by God with the first woman, Adam speaks to God and he speaks to her when he praises God with these words in Genesis chapter 2. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So now notice, in the first two chapters of the Bible, there are only two persons speaking. There's God and there's humanity, God and man. But then there is a third person that comes along in chapter 3. The serpent speaking challenges man's uniqueness. He's the only one among all of the animals who is able to speak, but now an animal comes and animated by the devil, by, by the adversary, by, by uh, the, Satan, and that speaking challenges man's uniqueness and it sets man up for an attitude that says, God does not have your best interest at heart. And so this foreign voice now, 
speaks to humanity. Prior to that point in Genesis 3, they've only known the voice of their good God and creator. And the Bible says we've given heed. Not just did Adam and Eve give heed, as we know the sorry tale. But the Bible says that we've each given heed, each of us, to his voice. So that instead of hearing exclusively the voice of the good shepherd, we all, like sheep, have gone astray and followed another shepherd. When we misuse the gift of communication that God has given us, we are following the lead of the adversary, the devil. When we misuse this gift of communication that God has given, we are following the lead of the adversary, the devil. And the adversary's tactic is not for us to always or even usually employ our words in blatant falsehood or or obvious cursing. Rather, it's for us to use our words carelessly and flippantly. And if we get in the habit of treating our words as cheap, we will most certainly at times and even often use our words destructively. And I say that because the book of Proverbs says this, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Proverbs goes on to say this, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. One commentator says this, what people say can lead to life or death. And this proverb affirms this point and then explains it. Those who love it will eat its fruit. The referent of it must be the tongue. Those who love the tongue and the words that come from it. That is what the tongue says. So those who enjoy talking, those who indulge in it, must bear its fruit, whether good fruit or bad fruit. So our words affect people. And our words, I say in your outline, can affect people for ill. Our words can affect people for ill. And that's why verse 29 commands us, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now the word unwholesome is a word for rotting and rotten. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 that these unwholesome words come from our hearts. So what happens is they develop and fester in our hearts until they come out in destructive ways. Some years ago, when I was working a real job in my computer programming job, we had a management journal that went around in the office. And one of the articles in one of these uh, editions of the journal compared people in an office with bad attitudes, people in that office that have bad attitudes, to a mesh or burlap bag full of rotted fruit. It smells awful, and rotten fermented juice seeps from the fruit and through the bag. And over time, and from time to time, something can just set the individual off so that they swing the bag over their head and they spatter others with the stench. And if you've been in an office setting... Or a high school cafeteria. Or any place where people are around, including churches. You can have people who have allowed that to develop. And they affect others by that attitude and the words that come from those attitudes. Or perhaps in a home. 
where words are not disciplined. And people speak whatever comes to mind. Now, why? Why would Christian people engage in unwholesome talk? Particularly about others. Well, I would suggest to you that the root of the reason for which we engage in this is unbelief. Unbelief. Now you say, what's the relationship between the way I talk and the way I talk about other people and, and unbelief? I believe in Jesus the whole time. Well, friends, when we don't discipline our words, we must not believe that our hearts are wicked like Jesus says. Or we don't believe that those we're listening to. Maybe we're not doing most of the talking. Maybe it's someone else that's doing the unwholesome talk. We're listening to it. But in order for us to engage in that and to imbibe that, we don't believe that others' hearts are wicked. And remember, (laughs) Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So when you're listening to someone speak in unwholesome ways, it doesn't matter how much a good friend they are of yours. How much you like them and they like you. What a pleasant person they are to be around. If they're speaking in unwholesome ways, remember Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So we don't believe our hearts are wicked. We don't believe that others' hearts are wicked. Well, we just don't believe that this stuff counts that the Bible says, you know, for church people. I mean, we're the good people. Well, we don't do that, you know, ugly stuff that the Bible says. Or we don't believe God's warnings about the destructive nature of the tongue. And because we fail to believe, we just keep on talking. Never mind that the Bible warns that in the presence of many words, sin is not absent. We must not really believe that because we talk incessantly. And if you've not disciplined your thoughts, then those words will often be harmful. You see, friends, if we really believed what God says about the importance of our words and the effect that those words can have, then we would be much, much more careful than we are. Now, some of you are regularly getting yourselves in trouble by your words. And it's because you have not disciplined your thinking. And that lack of discipline in your thinking comes out in your words. So until you make progress in your thinking, here's my profound advice. Profound advice. For free. You might want to write this down. Here's my profound advice. Until you discipline your thinking so that that can, discipline thinking can come out in your words... Here's my advice. Shut up. Really, just shut up. Now, my wife's serving in the nursery now. And that's a very good thing. Because when we were dating 32 years ago, she said, look, there's some rules. And the very first rule was we don't say shut up. So I I normally don't say shut up unless she's in the nursery. And this is just between us that I said shut up, okay? 
But really, some of us, and some of us who talk, and some of us who talk for a living, and therefore are tempted to talk too much, we need to discipline our minds and thereby discipline our tongues. And one of the best things you can do is just stop talking so much. Your personality can be a detriment here. If you're someone who is personable, you like to be around people, you like to talk, but your thoughts about issues and others are not Christ-honoring, but still you go and talk anyway. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, be slow to speak and quick to listen, eager to listen. And while you've hit the pause button on your tongue, when you use the time, then use the time to learn to talk to yourself in a God-honoring way. So instead of just spouting off whatever comes to mind, stop talking, discipline your thoughts, and then talk to yourself in a God-honoring way. That is, learn to think about issues and especially about people in ways that are Christ-like. So here's a suggestion for you. Ask yourself, whenever your thoughts are about another person, ask yourself this. Is what I'm thinking charitable? Is it loving? about that other person? Am I giving that person the benefit of the doubt? Is what I'm thinking about that individual true? Or is it just my speculation? And you know, many of us have fertile imaginations and so we can speculate about what's going on and if we don't discipline those thoughts and whatever thought comes to mind hits the tongue immediately, then we start saying what we're speculating about. Ask yourself, is this helpful for that person, for me to be thinking this and speaking this? And the more you talk to yourself that way, the less you'll talk to others in unhelpful ways about others. You won't just spout off whatever you've imagined, but instead, because you believe the Bible about the importance of your words and the ability of those words to harm, you will discipline your mind and in turn discipline your tongue. Now, for some of you, that means going to the person or to the people with whom you do this. And if you do this, you've got people with whom you do it. Maybe it's a favorite best friend and you just talk incessantly on the phone and with each other. Maybe it's a number of people. But for those who engage in this, it's going to mean that you go to those with whom you do this and say that God has convicted you about the way that you're talking with them and enlist them to help you. And it may be the people in your home that hear you talking this way. Enlist them, say today, God's word convicted my heart and I'm asking you to help me and hold me accountable in the way I use my tongue. Verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful. Now in verse 28 that we saw last week, it says there that those who stole are to steal no longer, but instead we are to do something useful with our hands. And the word useful in verse 28 is the same word for saying something helpful in verse 29. The Greek word that's behind both is usually translated good. 
So in verse 28, it's do good with your hands. And now in verse 29, it's speak good with your mouths. You see, friends, God's not only concerned that we do well, that we do the right things. God is concerned that we talk well, that we say the right things. And all of that has behind it how we think. Our words can affect people for ill. But in your outline, our words can affect people for good. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Build others up, building others up. That's in New Testament times, a construction term. And so it's advocating, it's it's requiring constructive speech, speech that edifies, speech that lifts up, speech that builds up. So with our mouths, we can build people up in, for example, for tr- in truth. So that they see truth about God, so that they see truth about themselves and about others. With our mouths, we can encourage people in faith to believe God. Remember, the New Testament word for faith and belief have the same root. So when we say... We can encourage people in faith. That means we can encourage people to believe, to believe God because of his promises, to believe God because of his deeds. With our mouths, if we're going to build people up, we can comfort those who are in trouble or in affliction. With our mouths, we can be used to rescue those that are lost. With our mouths, we have the privilege of speaking the gospel. One translation says that we do this, that we speak words that build up, that encourage, that are constructive. We do all of this so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, that does not mean, friends, that as we give grace to those who hear, that our words are always easy to speak or hear. Many of us, unfortunately, think that the most loving thing that you can do is never deal with an issue. Just ignore it. Now, sometimes that is best. If someone just annoys you, you don't have to tell them they're annoying. You know, if you're going to get along with people, you're just going to have to get along with people who are annoying. And we're all annoying to certain people. I'm annoying to a lot of people. You're annoying to some people. So you don't have to let people know every time you're annoyed by something. But if someone is, someone is sinning, then for their good, quite apart from your good, for their good, the Bible tells you to approach them. You can cover some things. Love covers a multitude of sins. But for the benefit of someone else, you approach them about things that are a problem for them. And the New Testament has this marvelous Greek word, nuthateo. And a working definition of this word and its various usage is this, loving confrontation with the truth, For the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. That is, you lovingly confront someone with the truth about God, about themselves, about their behavior. But you lovingly confront them with the truth for the purpose of seeing them change, go in a new direction for their benefit. And this word is used a number of times, a number of times in your New Testament. 
Romans 15, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to, and here's that word, instruct one another. Instruct one another in truth. Or sometimes it means to warn someone. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, warn. That's the word. Those who sin, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. It's translated admonish in another passage, Colossians 6. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and you admonish one another with all wisdom. So we make the mistake of thinking that love covers a multitude of sins means love never deals with sin. But the Bible's full of instances of the need and the command actually to deal with sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's that's given in the Bible in a number of passages. But that same phrase that covering a multitude of sins is used in a very interesting passage at the very end of the book of James. In James chapter 5, it says this, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and notice, cover over a multitude of sins. So in that instance, love covering a multitude of sins looks like this. The love looks like going to the person and turning them from the error of their way. Now, you can do that without being confrontational. You can lovingly confront someone with the truth for the purpose of change without being hostile or confrontational. And that means that you can and should always approach them with grace seasoned with salt. Here's what Colossians 4 says. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt. Now, that confrontation, using your words to help somebody and turn them from the air of their way. Now, get this. The subject about which you may need to approach someone may need to be about the use of their tongue in unwholesome ways. So you're using your tongue to help them correct the use of their tongue. So here are a couple applications of that in your outline. With all of that, Remember that words are sacred. Our words are to be sacred. Now that word sacred, as used in the Bible, means set apart. So our words and our ability to use words sets us apart from others just by being Humans, just by being made in the image of God, we are set apart in our ability to use words. We're the only creatures that talk in words. We're not the only creatures that communicate, but the only ones that do so in words. And the variety of our communication vehicle, words, means that we can be creative in their use. I can select the right word. I can think about what the right word is. And I can be creative in the way I use this gift that God has given. But I can also create words that are not only blessing but cursing. Not only constructive but destructive. But we're the only ones who can do this amongst God's creation. And understand as well that 
our words, according to God's word, are to be set apart for God's use. It means that we determine to use our gift of language for the purpose for which it was given. My tongue and my mouth, your tongue and your mouth, have been redeemed for new use, for new purposes. For God's purposes in the lives of others. And therefore, those words must be chosen carefully. Remember, your words are sacred. And remember as well that words reveal our hearts. Words reveal our hearts. The journal Biblical Counseling on this subject of how we talk says this, The Bible, more often than not, defines one who misuses the tongue as a kind of person, not as a kind of speech. That is, it's something that you are, not just something you do. God is actually more interested in the people who are doing the speaking than in their words because their words represent what's going on inside. And Jesus was seeking to help us to understand that when he said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That truth is central, the journal goes on to say, to the discussion of the misuse of our words. We should ask ourselves, what is going on inside? What's overflowing from the heart of one who does not communicate in helpful ways? Why do we do it? And that rot comes from somewhere, and the Bible tells us that somewhere is the overflow of our hearts. And that heart, dear friends, is active. Our hearts, according to the Bible, are not passive, they are active. It's not that my heart was just filled with junk that other people placed there and I passively just received it. No. My heart has actively processed what I've heard and in turn, it spews spam. I'm listening to junk and I'm putting out junk. So as your heart processes that stuff, just remember, friends, you become what you listen to. You become what you listen to. Jerry Bridges, author of that book, Respectable Sins, says this, For some years I have sought to apply Ephesians 4.29 to my speech. I'm sure I fail many times, but at least that's the benchmark or target I aim for. One night I started to say something negative to my wife about a former colleague. But then I thought of Ephesians 4.29, and as we say, I bit my tongue. I felt quite good about my self-control until the next morning. During my time with God, I thought about the previous night's incident. And then the thought came to me. But you thought it, didn't you? I was convicted. I realized I needed to guard not only my mouth, but more important, I needed to guard my heart. Proverbs 4.23 says famously, above all else, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. You see, friends, long before you lost it with your words, you lost it with your thoughts. You lost it in your heart. And James 3 queries, how how can this be from from a Christian heart that consistently this kind of thing would come out? James 3 
with 12 verses speaking about the destructive potential of the tongue, says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Now notice there the mention of being made in God's likeness. As you think about someone, anyone, in the church or outside of the church, when that person comes to mind, the first thing you should think about is this person is fearfully and wonderfully made. This person is a creature made in the image of God. And if they're a Christian, then there's someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And now as I set my mind that way, as I think about that person, it's going to temper the thoughts that I have and the words that I speak. We have a song that we sing sometimes called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. One of the verses says this, Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now we're one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. Our words affect people. And then quickly, in your outline, our words affect God. Verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And notice this grieving, this pain. That's a word for pain. This reaction is in, the, is in the context of the words that we speak. Do not grieve God by the way you talk. And so I have an application of that for you. Remember, friends, that God is the most important person in any relationship. God's the most important person in any relationship, and He's the most important person then in any conversation. God hears, God sees. God cares. And God is pained when we use the gift that he has given us for purposes other than which it was intended. So here are two commitments that I would encourage you to make, all of us. I will only speak that which builds up others. Now again, that may mean I have to speak hard words for the purpose of building up others. But I will only speak that which is for their benefit. And here's a second commitment. If I hear negative talk about another, I will insist the speaker and I go to the individual or individuals spoken about. If we could just do those two things. Have people who have committed before the Lord to think in ways, in thought patterns that are building up others, giving them the benefit of the doubt, charitable about them. And then if I hear others who are not doing that speak in ways that reflect that unhelpful heart, I insist the speaker and I go to the individual. We do that. We can you kill the destructive effects of the tongue. The psalmist said this in Psalm 19, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, you guys remember at the beginning, the beginning a long time ago? Matthew 12, 36 says we will be judged for every careless word 
of the nearly 409 million that we speak? So how can I withstand that judgment? How can you withstand that judgment? (laughs) You cannot. I cannot. So I want to end this with the good news. Literally the good news of the gospel. I can't withstand that judgment. Because there are too many words that I have spoken. And I can't get any of them back. And there are still words that I know in my own sinful frailty that I will speak. And I won't be able to get those back. By God's grace, I want to practice these commitments that we've talked about. But I know I will fail, and I certainly have failed. So if I'm going to be judged by all of this, how can I then stand? And the truth is I can't, but here's the good news. Jesus did what you can't do. And in his 33 years of walking the earth, every word he spoke, every last word he spoke was exactly the right word. And the Bible says when you come to him, you not only get the benefit of the penalty that he paid for your sin on the cross, you get the benefit of his absolutely righteous life applied to you. So the words of Jesus are applied to me. And God the Father looks at me through the words of Jesus. And in my experience, day by day and year by year, I want to become in my experience what I am in my position before God because of Christ. But we do not despair, but rather we exult in the fact that Jesus has done what we could not do. And with joy, we seek to emulate his character in our lives. And so that's what God is calling us to do. And I say in your take home truth, Christians show the difference Christ has made in how they talk. One last thing and we're done. We have communion, the Lord's table, in two weeks. And the Bible tells us that we should not participate in the communion, the fellowship of the body, if there are are matters that have rended parts of the body. So if you are at odds, I say this in the run-up to communion every time, if you are at odds with someone in the fellowship of God's church, you have an obligation to seek them out and to make that right. Do that this week. And we look forward to the celebration of the communion of God's body in two weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us. And thank you, Lord, for loving us and caring for us. In so many ways, but among them, instructing us. Because, Lord, you made us. You know what we were made to be. And you know everything about what is wrong with us. You know how our hearts tick. You know what we're motivated by. You know that our active and sinful hearts move us in particular directions. And so in your word, you've given us instruction, practical instruction, to mold, to have those hearts molded into Christ-likeness. Lord, may that manifest itself in the way we talk. And may we take it so seriously that we're willing to reduce our number of words so that we're only speaking that which is helpful. That we're willing to use our tongues to to help others, but also to lovingly confront those who are failing to do that in your name. And as a result of that, may we not only individually, but as a body, reflect the image of our great God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.